Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. And I will get straight into it. Um, well, I'll read it first and then we'll go into it. So, uh, we begin. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you... Look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now uh, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So those are the verses um, that we will be starting in. And uh, we'll be going, we'll start with uh, 1 to 2 first. Which reads, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So let's not forget the context in which Paul is writing this. That this is in the context of persecution. That he is imprisoned for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, and any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. And he goes on. So, I think when he says this, um, it gives us good direction on how we ought to be when we are in persecution. Um, that one, first, we should be, when he says, encouraged in Christ, how are we to be encouraged in Christ during persecution? Um, well, first, I think I said this last week, but the reason for our persecution should only be for Christ, that he is the sole means by which we are hated for. And... When we are encouraged in Christ, we are to know that he is our rock. He is our foundation. That despite what bodily ailments may follow, follow us because of the at the hands of men, by those who wish to seek harm to us for our faith, that it won't matter in the end because we will be going to glory and we are doing it in a means that is obedient to Christ, that we are suffering for a good cause. That is for the preaching and spreading of the gospel. Psalms 18 verse 2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and my horn of my salvation, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. He is the one who we are to rely on and who we are to be encouraged in. He is the sole reason for us not being hopeful in our present circumstance that no matter what is thrown at us we persevere because Christ persevered and that since Christ lives us we are able to persevere by the right motives we move on in the later half of this 
verse, he says, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. That was paraphrased. That these things are what Paul is exhorting them to do uh, is a pretext for verse 2, but it is the he's explaining to us how we ought to be when we are reviled by others. And not just that, but that what our motivation should be. Uh, we should have affection and sympathy. We should be that if there is participation of the Spirit, these things will be made evident. And that there is comfort in love. And this comfort in love is not the love of others, although there is comfort in that, but is the love of Christ. That we are comforted by him. He is our, he is our rock, as I said, or this ground we stand on while we are being persecuted, and even when we were not being persecuted directly. Um, and that while these things are happening, we should show affection and sympathy to those who are persecuting us. Think of Stephen Stoning. He says, Lord, they, not, they do not do what they want to do, or they do not know what they do. It is out of sympathy well, it is out of love for the gospel that we preach to them the gospel, but we are to show them love, affection, and sympathy, even when they hate us, when they hurt us, when they stone us, um, or in these days throw us in jail or starve us. Um, but I guess Christians are probably stoned in some places in the world. Um, and then there's a temptation that lies to these things that we may not do these things. And that's where verse 2 comes into play. He says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind, and of one mind, sorry. Um, so, he, this is an encouragement to examine ourselves, because he is saying what we have to do. He says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. If we are not in these things, then that would make us question. The, the very fact that he is telling us to be of the same mind spurs on self-examination, because we need to ask, are we in the same mind as these things? And it, it speaks again to how we ought to be holy. That would be so easy to fall into sin while we are being hated by others, that we may show anger towards those who hurt us that for the gospel, and that the temptation to fall into sin while others um, assault you for your Christian beliefs is so in your face. It is so easily to be taken upon, to fall in the sin in these means, but he is telling us not to. That we are to love those who hurt us and to preach to them the gospel. That we think of many people, um, well, I'm sure we all probably have someone in mind where we've seen a clip on the internet where um, someone was saying something true, but then insult started flying and the other person got angry and Everyone was being very toxic, that no one was speaking in love, no one was showing Christ's love to them, despite what was happening to the individual. He's telling us to be aware of that and to not do that, that we are to, like I've already said, we are to show them the love of the gospel. And not to show them the love of the gospel, but tell them the love of the gospel. To tell someone to repent and believe is not hating them. It is showing them love. It is trying to save them from the damnation that awaits them. And we also think of the local bodies that are um, under persecution. It's easy to get caught up in a fad when you're in a country or a um, state or a province or a territory, whatever it is, it is easy to be in a place where others are anti-Christian, anti-Christ, um, 
and have your local body get caught up in the fad of the latest trends. They get more concerned with a different ideology than the one that is being that when though then the one that we ought to preach, um, and that it would be very easy for a church to get caught up in a manner which is not suited for the gospel. That instead of preaching them the gospel, instead of preaching the gospel every Sunday, that we instead preach something that is separate from the gospel. That we Yes, we are to preach condemnation for those who are outside of Christ because it is a warning. But let us not cut up in the fact that they are being condemned and let us not get caught up in the fact that we hope they are condemned. We hope they turn and repent. That is, my, that is what I'm trying to get at. And that we must be aware. Paul is warning not just the individual here, but because he's talking to the church of Philippi. But he, so he's also talking to the church and so too is he talking to the church. We must also... Make sure our churches are doing the same. Our churches must be showing affection and sympathy, must be encouraged in Christ, and must have participation in the Spirit, which drives these things, as well as their encouragement in Christ. They would have comfort and love in Christ. Not saying that we ought to sacrifice truth for unity. That would be false unity. No, but rather that we are to show them truth, and we are to show them love and that those things go hand in hand we'll move on to verses three to five do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves let each of you look not only to his own interests but also the interests of others have this mind among yourselves which is yours in christ jesus So, so we, again, I'm going to drive us back to the context. Paul's in prison for the gospel. Um, he is telling them to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, which for the longest time, interesting enough, I thought conceit and concede were the same words. Conceit means excessive pride. He also says, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He is saying that we should be more concerned about the interests of others while we are being persecuted. That we are to value others' welfare more than our own that we are to throw away our lives for the gospel in the sense that we are not to be worried about what penalties await us for what we believe what we should be worried is about what penalties await them for what they believe and there is in a sense where we are to value others by preaching them the truth, which I've already said, but we are also to value our brothers and sisters in the faith more than faith more than we value ourselves. That if we see a brother or sister struggling in the faith, we are to reach out to them. And if it means sacrificing our time, so be it. It is for the building of God's kingdom. Uh, we re, we I, I think of this in Romans 5, verses 6 to 8, where he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For only for one only scarcely died, die, sorry, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us so we also have the means by which or for why we are to be sacrificial towards others because Christ was sacrificial towards us and might we not say that we are above them what arrogance would that be when Christ himself God Almighty died for us 
read verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This speaks to, like I said, how where these things come from and how we are to go about that um, sacrificing for others. That this is only made possible for the right motivations because we are in Christ. That any attempt of self-sacrifice outside of Christ, when you're outside of Christ and you seek to do something good, it is for the wrong motivations, because it is not for the glory and praise of God. So, on the reverse end, we as Christians must see that all that we do, all the good work that we do, is for the glory of Christ, Jesus, for the ultimate glory of God. And that in our sacrificing of our own time, of our own effort, of our own work for others, it is so that God may be glorified. Even if we are to sacrifice for an unbeliever, that should point them to Christ, that all that we do is marked by Christ's work in our life, and that we see that Christ is glorified in us to others. Um, but we must not, sac we must, I've touched on this, but I'm going to touch, again, touch on it again, because it is very important, and it is something that has been so mangled in our day, that many people today see that loving others means that we are accepting of them, that we agree with everything they say, and everything we say, even if there is apparent contradictions, but no, that's not how the Christian is to love people. Uh, showing them love is to preach to them the gospel through our actions and through our words. And that even if it causes them distress, it is good because they are distressed, because they are standing condemned before a holy and just God. And in that, we are showing them love because we are warning them that if they continue in their way of sinning against God, that the full judgment and justice of God will fall upon them because they are in Adam and they are not in Christ. And this then goes to tell us for how we are to go about um, preaching the gospel to unbelievers and interacting with, sacrificing for unbelievers is what I mean to say. This tells us in how we are meant to sacrifice our time and effort for unbelievers. Because what good would it be if we were to sacrifice much time for an unbeliever? Much effort and thought, but yet neglect to tell them the very gospel, which is much more valuable than any worldly means which they're asking for help. Say if an unbelieving friend wants you to help them build their deck. Awesome. You say yes, because one, you love them, and two, you love God. You love God should be above that. Your love of God should be above everything. But say you help them build the deck. They can see that you are willing to assist them out of love. And they may think, they may think oh, you're a nice guy. But no, Everything you do should be pointed to the gospel. What would it be if you were to tell the, if you were to help them, and then if you neglect to show them the gospel, and then they are damned. They don't have a, they don't hear the good news. I'll move on to verse six to eight. Who though, sorry, um, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, we have to be careful here. Where he says, Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, Paul here is not saying that Jesus was not God, was not the second person of the Trinity before his crucifixion. Because 
why he says this is because in the starting of the verse he says it was he was in the form of god thus inferring that he was equal with god because he himself is the second person of the trinity the second part of the verse being did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped speaks to the way in which christ acted on earth on this earth which he was suffering which in this in the form of a suffering servant because we have to follow paul's thought here he just laid out for us how we are to be in persecution and that itself is very humbling because it's so easy to think be prideful in that context and in any context but especially in this context um so he points the ultimate example of humility god himself coming in the flesh as jesus christ and this is the point he's trying to get at so i want to emphasize this point god himself the ultimate and infinite the unimaginably good god an unimaginably powerful god any the god who's above all things came down and took the form of a servant i know this is the basic story that you've all we've all heard before but think about how immense that is that christ the ultimate being god himself i don't know what were other words i can use to describe it but that god himself would take the lowest a low stance and be with sinful human beings when he himself is was is perfection this causes makes us ask the question what is our sin in front of god it is wickedness beyond imagination and beyond measure that our sins before an infinite god an infinitely good god require infinite punishment that our sins in his sight can't even stand that they burn we see, we learn about the immediate destruction of someone whom of a sinful man who stands in front of god and sees god in his entirety how they die because of their sinfulness and he comes down from heaven all, from heaven above to us and that our sin he walked among us with our sin all around him for the purpose of saving us and how merciful he is that he would take this low stance before men who have nothing but empty towards him how undeserving are we are that he would show this this mercy how gracious is it that what christ did for us that the mercy the pure mercy of him can't even be put into proper words that our hatred towards him towards god who made us and made everything we see around us is and yet he comes to die for us it calls us to ask that it is nothing that we did to spur this on that this mercy is by him alone and nothing from us that there is nothing in us that would warrant god on high to come to such a low stance i'll quote jonathan edwards here the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary verse 8 and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross 
that the reason he died, yes, so there's prophecy. There's more than this reason that he died from a larger perspective. But for the people who killed him, they killed him for for nothing but the good that he did. At any moment, he could have called power from on high to strike these men dead and strike us dead as well, for our sin is an abomination in his sight. And yet he doesn't. He is merciful towards us, not just then when the men who we came to die for killed him, but that we ourselves are staining his sight when those who are outside of Christ stain his sight, for they are an abomination in his eyes, and how we must be only grateful towards him for the mercy that he has shown, for we were once sinners, as others were, and we still are sinners, but we are sinners saved by grace. I have a subtitle here. It says, Man Killed God. The twisted perversion that that is, that the creature would kill his creator. And yet, he intended it. I read John 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, sorry, and, sorry, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the, he was in the beginning with God, all things made through him, and without him was not anything made that was, sorry, I think there's something wrong with what I'm reading, but all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and in the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then I'll also read John 10 to 11. He was in the world. Sorry, John 1, 10 to 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not come, did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. With that in mind, let's turn the attention to ourselves and the current context which Paul is talking about. Should we not uh, do what Christ did in the sense of him humbling himself before God? That Christ humbled himself to the point of death. And yet we arrogantly boast ourselves up. that we would dare sin in his sight. I'll go 9 to 11. Actually, I'm going to take a water break. One second. I have drank the water. All right. Um, we'll read 9 to... What in the world? Oh, sorry. I was reading the wrong thing. 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the, t at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, as a consequence of his obedience in dying willingly, God the Father has exalted the name of Christ to be above every name. Now we must, again, just like the other verse, we must be careful. He is not saying that before this, Christ the divinity of Christ was not above all else. He was already the second person of the Trinity before his incarnation. But that this is to say that Christ did not already, sorry, 
reading what I already paraphrased. But that bestowed means that his name is one that can be known by every tribe, nation, and tongue. That this name has power over these things. Um, now, you may consider this more unclear than what I just read. Um, I think it is more clear in the point is getting at, but I'm going to quote John Kelvin, but he speaks in Old English. So, um, be prepared. He also says some big words that I don't even fully know how to pronounce, so I might skip over them because they're names of things that don't matter for the point. But he says, for what need, I ask, had we, had he who was the equal of the, of the father of a new exaltation? That's a question. He says, let then pious readers learn to disdain perverted interpretations that would say otherwise. That's a paraphrase because he mentions um, a subgroup. I'm going to assume it's a heresy that's spreading around at that time. But people who think that at this moment he was not exalted, he at this moment he, he was then exalted in the sense that he was divine, but that he cl closes it here with, hath given him a name here is employed to mean dignity, a manner of expression which is absolutely common in all languages. That the name of Christ is now being able to be used to spread the gospel. This is the new covenant. Uh, in verse 10, um, let me read that. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So it breaks it down in three sections here about Christ, where Christ is reigning, that he is above these things and that every knee should bow. Oh, I was pinged. Yeah, I'll, I'll post that in a uh, second bonus. Just, I'm going to just don't ping me when uh, I'm in the middle. OK, uh, it's all good. Just just know for next time. <laughs> You need it? Okay, yeah, I'm cl I, I wasn't looking at the chat, but I'm closing the chat now. Um, let me go back. Uh, where was I? Sorry about that. Um, so the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So that this is the Lordship of Christ. That everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, meaning hell, under the earth, I believe is referring to hell, should bow to him. I'm going to break down each of these uh, name, uh, each of these places, I guess you could say, or dimensions, or whatever you want to call it. Dimensions as in, I won't even get into that. <laughs> but um, break down each of these things that you listed here. That... So what, what, who bows to him in heaven? And what authority does he have in heaven? Well, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. We know that. And that he is a second person of the Trinity, which is of the Godhead. That those who are in heaven, all the creatures in heaven, the angels, cherubim, whatever it may be, and us when we die, that we are in full submission willingly to him that we bow and worship him that we thank god to the mercy that was previously described and how undeserving we were and 10 where he says on earth sorry verse 10 we were already in verse 10 but when he says on earth houses a name above all other names on earth that he is the lord of earth I think earth here is much more than earth. It is the cosmos. It is all of physical reality, uh, physical in the sense that we know it, how it is here. Um, but that his name, Christ, his name is the only one that saves on earth. That in this way, Christ is above all other names. And that not just is his name the only one that saves that he rules over the nations and has ultimate authority over them. 
that there is no governmental power which can say to Christ, no, we're above you. He is the very precondition for their existence. Romans 13, 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We'll move to under the earth. So how are knees to bow to God well in hell when there is when they disobey Christ? Well when they're in, in hell, the demons and the people, the devil, that they are bowing to Christ. Why would they be in submission to him? Now Catholics have used this as a as a uh, um a, uh, uh, what is the word called a a site like a, a proof for purgatory. However, this isn't what it's saying. Just because knees are bowing does not mean that they are in submission to Christ and to His kingdom. They is it a force? It is a forced submission. It is their punishment because they have disobeyed Him and their bows to him because they are forced to because what who else are they to bow to themselves when it's so plain to them that they are suffering the very things they are because of themselves because of their sin because of their hatred towards god but the god has is far above them as he is, they are judging them, he is, sorry, the Trinity, God is judging them for their rebellion against his throne. I'll read Psalm 2. Uh, why, do the, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us um, sorry, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he then he will speak to them in his wrath, and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill, I will tell of, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, "You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make you the nation, the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them to pieces like a pot, like a potter's vessel." Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in trembling. Kiss the sun, lest you be lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are you who take refuge in him. So with all that in mind, how are we to proclaim the truth of Christ, the gospel that saves, to the world? Well, we are to fully trust that it is the gospel that saves. That since he is, everything is, is in submission to it, whether they like it or not, because he is God, that... We must not be afraid to preach the true, full, and undiminished gospel that we should trust that God calls his children, that the true saving power of the gospel is what saves. We, might not, we must not appeal to the world and the things of the world to make the gospel more appealing to those who would otherwise stand against it if it wasn't so appealing, but that we should trust that it is the true saving message of the gospel that saves people that repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that you are realizing that 
there is nothing in you that can save you and that you are calling out to God, Jesus Christ, to save you. That that he is your only hope. We must not diminish that because for those who are truly his children, they recognize that. For they are the elect of God and that they turn to Christ in full repentance and faith without any enticement from what they already have, which is carnality. Romans 1, uh, sorry, quick side note, not saying that uh, loud lights and fog machines are carnality, but rather that it distracts from the actual gospel. Anyways, Romans um, 1, 6 to 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I'll move to our last text in our study, um, verses 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, in all that I have said, and how we are supposed to proclaim the gospel, but before that, in how Christ came from on high, took the form of a servant, the unmeasurable and unimaginable humility that that showed us. After him, after Paul giving us the greatest example of humility, tells us how we should be with our brother and sister in obeying Christ. That he says, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that we must humble ourselves to the commands of Christ. For it is the least that we can do. And that we must examine ourselves and realize our own sinfulness, hence fear and trembling, and also fear and trembling because of the holiness of God. We realize how unworthy we are. And that we are to look to Christ and his word for our salvation and for the ultimate growing in sanctification, meaning growing in holiness, abstaining from sin, hating sin, and loving that which is good. That we are to look to his word and we are to do it with fear and trembling. And then he'll, uh, I, sorry, I kind of jumped ahead. But his first point he says, where he says, Therefore, my beloved, just as, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but in my absence. Where he says, in my presence, our focus should not be on the man. Even I myself, as I preach, the focus is not on me, on what I say or do? Well, in a sense, it, it kind of is in the sense that I'm the one communicating these things to you, but that is all for and all pointed to and all for the ultimate purpose of God and for the glorification build and building up of his church. And how we are not to focus on the individual who teaches us in the sense that we give glory to them. But that it is God who we look to for this glory. That, if anything, it would be sinful and a misplaced trust to have your trust in a man who is sinful, who falls every day before God because of his sin. But that we must trust in the unchanging word of God and God himself. That our faith is not in the man, but in God. Because he is the one who died for us, not the one who's telling you. 
although the one who's telling you may die for the faith, but even that is for the faith. It's not, you know what I mean? Um, and it also speaks to how we should grow in the faith. That our growing in the faith is not of ourselves or for the purpose of others. Sorry, I meant to say solely for the purpose of others. And in a sense, I guess not for ourselves either. But that our growing in the faith is not for the others to please them. Um, that's very tempting. The more you look up to someone in the faith, how you wish to see that they're like, yeah, they, they think I'm a really good Christian. No. You want to be a really good Christian because God himself commands it and because he is the one who everything is about. Move on to 13 where he says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. It is God who saves and it is God who refines We are to only grow in holiness because of the new heart which is already to be put in us because of God's mercy. And that, much like Paul's circumstance and him being imprisoned for the gospel, that it is God who uses means to grow us in the faith. He uses the word to instruct us in the faith and to grow us in the faith, to convict us, but that he uses external means, whether it be trial or tribulation, or even uh, times of peace and safety as a means to grow us in sanctification because we still sin. That is the end of our study. I will pray, um, and then we will uh, go to questions. Lord, thank you for the study. I pray that um, we may look unto you all the more, Lord, and that we may seek to glorify you with all that we do. Father, let us not grow tired and wearisome, Lord, but in all that we do, Lord, is for your glory, and that we may seek to honor you and to be conformed to your word, Lord, and not exalt ourselves in pride or any sort of sin that is abomination before you, Lord, but that we may seek you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right. Questions. Yes, I will. Boneless, it's okay. It's not a big deal. You're, you're okay, man. No, what do you mean, no? All right, uh, questions. I don't know where... Hamster. Hamster face looks like an energy monster drink. <laughs> okay. Um, did you watch that series? Which series? Is he here? Yeah, you're still here, man. What series? What series are you talking about, Adam? Master Chief? You said it a while ago, uh, did you watch that series at Graceful? Question mark. And then you said that would be pretty epic. And then Sango says T series. For those on the podcast, he's typing. Oh, he stopped. He started typing. I get some water. Gustin really just asks a question and then leaves the study.
Oh, was going to watch it a second time, but figured, but what series? You're not telling me what series you're talking about, Adam. I can't tell if you're trolling or not. <laughs> Jojo. Oh, <laughs> it's, sorry. I forgot we already talked about that. Um, oh, I was reading. That's right. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. Anyways. My brain. Wada English. Uh, Wada English. Did you copy and paste that Kelvin quote? I did copy and paste that Elvin quote. Elvin. Elvin in the trick. Uh, Kelvin quote. Otherwise, I wouldn't be quoting it. <laughs> I'd be paraphrasing it. Can you post the quote here? Yes, I will do that. Um, Goosen asked a question, but he's not even in the study, so I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> I'm sorry, Gustin. When you watch the study later, uh, you know what that is. Well, I guess I should just in case someone doesn't know. How does God work in this? Well, actually, I guess I did explain that at the very end through means and through his word. Um, but what do you think about it means when it says work out your own salvation? Did I answer that with the last part, Larry boy? Uh, I can I can say here it's no big deal. Um, the uh, so work out your own salvation with fear and tr or fear and trembling. So we are careful. Uh, we are not to work for our salvation in the sense that what we do contributes to our salvation. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, uh, by Christ alone. But that. Working out our own salvation is to examine ourselves and to see if we are in the faith that there is evidence of the work of Christ. Sorry, evidence within with the of the work of Christ that is in us. That say if there is a pervasive sin in our life and we don't even know it's a sin, how are we to know? We go to God's word and we see if it is a sin. If there is theology that we have wrong like say we we don't believe in the fall um or something like that then you go to god's word and you examine god's word and in examining god's word it examines you does that make sense or are you more talking about something else so i i can go into more detail if you need me to water no problem. Um, Alright, and that was all the questions. Cool beans. So how, I will do the thing that Goosen likes, and I will say this study is... Uh, three, two, one, done.